Hey, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is a comics podcast, and this is your host, Ilana Levin. This is the comics podcast for people who sometimes like their super-powered soap operas taken from the page to the ring and back again, especially when there's actually a ton of social commentary woven into the story and the meta-narrative and the promotional breakfast cereal. That's right. There's a new wrestling comic in town, and it's from one of the sharpest critics turned comics writers around. Joining me today to talk about the WWE, the New Day, Power of Positivity, is author Evan Narciss. Evan Narciss is a writer and consultant who works in video games, comic books, and TV, often focusing on the intersection of blackness and pop culture. He was a journalist and critic for many years, having previously written for The Atlantic, Time, Kotaku, io9, and The Times. He's taught a course on video game journalism at NYU and appeared as an expert guest on CNN and NPR. He's the author of The Rise of the Black Panther, graphic novel for Marvel Comics, and served as a narrative design consultant on the upcoming Marvel's Spider-Man Miles Morales video game. A native New Yorker, he now lives in Austin, Texas, and joins us today. Hello. Hey, Alana. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I, I also was a big fan of the comic, uh, well, of, of the Black Panther comic you did as well. I had a nice, meaty, uh, well-written and like very politically interesting story to it. And I I, uh, I was excited to have an excuse to bring you on for something brand new as well today. So thanks for coming on. Yep, we can talk about that. <laughs> cool, cool. And for folks who are not familiar with the new comic, which is on the shelves, is it on the shelves right now, right? Yes, like- yeah, it came out last week. Last week, it is from Boom Studios in partnership with WWE. Um, it is the first issue of a two-issue limited series featuring WWE superstars Kofi Kingston, Big E, and Xavier Woods by right by Evan Narcis. That's me. And, hey, and Austin Walker from Friends at the Table, and artist Daniel Bayless of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers fame, and letterer DC Hopkins. For people who like do not know wrestling at all, we are going to still make this as accessibly as human possible, which I think we can do because I'm like by no means an expert in wrestling at all, but I do know more than nothing. So I think we're going to try to like thread the needle so that fans and newbies can kind of understand. And the backstory of the comic is this. Kingston, Woods, and Big E have collectively won 11 tag team championships in WWE, including the longest reign in WWE history. The new series will allow fans to discover the origins and struggles of the three WWE superstars before the fateful day when they realized they were stronger together than apart. Um, So, yeah, I just finished reading the issue and it is delightful. It is really delightful. I'm so excited. Yeah, totally. I've actually always been interested in the new day in particular ever since a friend of mine explained to me the origin of their gimmick um and basically the origin of their gimmick is like social commentary of the wwe yeah it's this weird kind of like inverse feedback loop i'm probably reusing some wrong words there but like you know what's really fascinating to me about their career journey is how at first you know it was kind of under duress. The the gimmick that they were um, presented with uh, was not something of their own choosing, but um, they kind of subverted it. And that subversion was a commentary on their relationship with the company. Um, and I think 
their relationship with the fans um and kind of a commentary on their relationship with their own careers you know like you know mm. um and the fact that they were i think so amazingly successful at subverting all those things and interrogating them and crafting them into a new wildly popular identity for themselves as a tag team is super fascinating and is very much like the crux of the book that Austin and I wrote. Yeah, totally. Is it true that basically like WWE was like, we want you guys to do like a BLM theme. And they were like, that's a terrible idea. We have a better one. Well, you know, again, the guys talk about this on their podcast, and that was a, a rich source of material and background and understanding for me in Austin. But, like, as I understand it, you know, the first gimmick that they that was foisted on them was, like, a gospel praise group, right? Like, Oh, that's, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, there was a choir in the intro video um, and some of their um, music as well, and um, uh, Xavier Woods was like playing a preacher role. Um, and they were like, we don't know about this. Um, but at the same time, it was their best shot at actually, you know, staying together, working steadily, being, um, on TV, which is a huge thing for, you know, a a promotion like WWE, like, you know, these performers go on the road a lot. And a lot of those matches you don't see, they're working just as hard. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but, like, unless you're on TV, actively building that fan base, um, growing in popularity, um, you, your your career days can be kind of um, mid tier. You know, there's a there's an expression in wrestling, which is mid card, right? Which is like you're not the top of the card. You're not necessarily the people. Uh, um, you're not necessarily the performers that people come to see. Uh, but like you're not like on the lower rungs, right? You know, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes you know a mid carter, somebody who uh, is shows up every week to work. You know, sometimes their only job is to make somebody else more popular look good, right? And right. Um, it can be a kind of purgatory, though. And you know, the guys didn't want to be stuck there, right? So like, you know, when you hear them talk about you know the early stages of careers and the importance of being on TV. That's why, right? Like that's, you get to develop the character and the persona and the gimmick in front of an audience. Um, and if it works, you know, you can, you can ascend to the upper echelons of WWE ecosystem, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. you look at people like, um, I don't know, Randy Orton, who's like been, um, a, a high level, um, performer within the promotion for such a long time. And it's because, you know, eventually, the persona that he crafted uh, uh, gelled in a, such a way that he was a reliable heel, you know? Like, he he used to be kind of like a, a, a character that seemed um, hard to figure out, but now it's like, oh, no, you know that he's the cocky, you know, kind of been here, done it all, seen it all type. Um, and now that he's kind of achieved this... Um, you know, like stalwart status, right? Like he's a dude who's been around for like, you know, upwards of 10, 15 years. Um, he will be part of the major storylines that um, um, they craft for, you know, each cycle of of um, the WWE kind of annual year. He's going to be on the big pay-per-views, you know, because it's not a question anymore. And for guys like, you know, Kofi and E and Xavier to reach that same level under 
kind of um, duress at first anyway um, was, I, I think, a really fascinating story for us to try and figure out how to tell. Yeah, yeah. I guess someone who is, I've always been more interested in the storytelling around wrestling than necessarily watching the matches itself, which might be because I'm a product of like, when I was a kid, like the wrestling was like Hulk Hogan and very, they just, they, they weren't as good at doing moves as people are today. So I like, I, I I've always been interested in the soap opera of it and the characters and like the drama that shapes the choices that the stories make. And like your, your comic is really about like, how, well, one, you, you have their actual, you know, them as kids, like learning how to, who to becoming, you know, who they came to be, but also like thinking about how they exist as black wrestlers in, you know, the WWE, which has historically been pushing people to do really disturbing stereotypes um, and like how they, but still connecting with this despite that. Um, It's like, it's, it's really amazing. Like you're doing something really complicated in like a, in a wrestling uh, promote, you know, like promotional comic. And I love that. Like you get, you get to do that with them, that it's, they're not shying away from those questions. Um, You know, everything that you say is true. One of the things that is um was really gratifying to hear, uh, Austin and I went on the New Day podcast a couple of weeks ago. Ooh. And um, you know, to hear the guys talk about like uh they asked us, you know, how'd y'all get this stuff in here? Because you did get it in here, you know? Like <laughs> and the stuff that they're talking about is this kind of like shadow tension between their wants and desires and WWE as a business, the the wants and desires that they have, Um, you know, and there's some push and pull and some tension. um, And in an officially licensed product, you know, it can be tricky to get that stuff in. But I felt like, you know, I think the reason we were successful, at least in getting it in, I'll leave it to others to to declare how successful we were in telling the story. But like, very and get thank you but but in, we're, the reason we were successful in getting it in i think is because like there's truth there right you know mm-hmm. like um one of the trickiest things but one of the most fun and also fascinating elements of doing the story was it's out there already you know like the guys have talking about have talked about their journey you know like this is not the first time this is not reporting this is not journalism right we're not breaking the story on how their origin story happened within the WWE. What we are doing is fictionalizing it and figuring out a way um, to, uh, cr- to to transmute that truth, right, um, of their actual experiences into fiction. And then, you know, in that process, hopefully, like, magnify the metaphorical power of their journey. You know, to me, hearing about those guys struggle to find a place to believe in themselves, to 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 work to believe in themselves, but then be surrounded by a larger overarching structure that doesn't believe in them or they're not sure does, to figure out what their value is and, <clears throat> and how to achieve the best versions of themselves. That, you know, I'm not a wrestler, but I know that story. That's been part of my mm-hmm. career, um, um, as a journalist, as a critic, and now a creator. Um, and I know 
rather Austin and I knew that there was enough um, kind of similarity and common cause there that we'd be able to figure that stuff out. Getting it through the machinery of the WWE as a corporate entity was a different challenge, but you know, we did have to, 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 to turn some dials and tweak some knobs and modulate um, uh, to present a story that would then be truthful to the new day's experiences, but also comment on, you know, the inherent tension of that experience of their journey. Right. So um, like I said, like this story is not a new story. Um, in terms of individual lives of some of the people that were involved, um, and I include mine and Austin in that, um, our own journeys. So it wasn't new, but it was like, okay, how do we tell this in a way where um, the truth survives, but it's told in a way where um, it can actually come out in the world? Yeah, yeah. I. I realize I should I should define for listeners who are completely unfamiliar with them. Like, how would you characterize the New Day gimmick? Like, they're I I don't well, feel like I'm comfortable you know, putting to, it into to me words. now. Now, to me, their gimmick is that they're heightened versions of themselves, right? So you have Xavier Woods, who's like a guy who likes anime and video games and um, is nerdy in that way. You know, mm-hmm. you have um, a, a Big E, who's a dude who is hilarious and funny. Um, um, he's a guy who kind of subverts your initial notions about him. Cause you look at him and he's like, he's a big dude and maybe he's not that smart or whatever, but like he's sharp as a razor yeah. and um, his, his improvisations on the mic when they're doing promos and talking trash in the ring are hilarious. Um, he's super gifted with physical humor. You have uh, Kofi Kingston, who's like a, a long running um, WWE wrestler who um, takes big risks in the ring. You know, um, he's just as funny as the other guys, you know, and they treat him a little bit as an elder statesman because he's been within the WWE um, as a performer longer than uh, than either one of them. Um, so you have this mix of personalities. You have a guy who takes risks, who um, is good at uh, energizing the crowd. You have a guy who's really smart and nerdy. Um, um, you have a guy who's big and funny, um, and you know, they're not all that different from each other in my experience, um, Mm -hmm. as performers, but they each bring something different to the table and, um, they riff well with each other. Um, so, you know, the other thing about the WWE, what they build as sports entertainment is actually scripted storylines for these performers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, sometimes they have input, sometimes they don't. Um, but there's an element nowadays. People know that this is fiction, right? So uh, there's this really delicious, like, frisson between um, the knowledge that is scripted, the surprise of new story turns, um, and also the real lives of these performers and where they do and don't inform the storylines, right? So you know. Like you look like like somebody like the Miz, right? Who's a guy who started off on uh, the real world um, on MTV as a guy who wanted to be a wrestler, became a wrestler, you know, is now one of the top performers in the promotion, has had a reality show about his career and marriage, and that all feeds back into 
the stuff that goes into the ring, you know? So um, there's this fascinating meta aspect to all of it now where, like, we know that that the audience knows that this stuff is scripted and um, created by people outside the ring. And seeing... Now, now the fun is kind of is not so much to be had in the ring, even though there's plenty of fun stuff in the ring. But it's like, okay, can we predict where this stuff is going? Do we know what we're gonna do? Do we know what they're going to do with Roman Reigns with Seth Rollins? Do we know what they're gonna do with Ken Lashley? You know, like and th- this kind of um, large open secret um, has informed, I think, the the consumption and enjoyment of professional wrestling as a product um, yeah. in, in, in really interesting ways. I this think is, so. This is not the same as when we were kids and thought it was all real and <laughs> um, um, were surprised by things. This is like, now we know it's, it's not fake. There's, there's a reality to it, but it's an, it's an alternate reality. It's a parallel, parallel reality. Um, and I think that's, that's makes modern day wrestling super fun and interesting. In some ways, well, you know, I, as a kid, I grew up, um, my dad would like make fun of us for watching wrestling. His grandfather used to watch it and was definitely like in the Stone Ages. And it was unclear to him if he if he realized it was real or not. He didn't speak English. And I think my dad had a lot of feelings of like, this is bad entertainment and it's dumb to watch it. And so I'd always been heard like, it's fake, it's this, it's that. And then now when you watch it and you're like, what's not fake is the amazing physical ability of these performers. That's not like, that's realer now than it ever was because people are so skilled at doing these live stunts. Good God. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, and, and that, but, at, but while we're also more aware of the scripted nature of the stories surrounding it, it's a really interesting time to think and talk about wrestling. I, so I, I wanted to ask, I think one of the reasons why new day is so popular is that like, they're so relatable to viewers because they are nerds, like so many of the viewers. Like, I think there was a moment where, you know, it was assumed that the average wrestling viewer was like a a really like macho bro dude. Yeah, yeah. And I think they've realized actually a lot of wrestling fans are nerds and actually a lot of wrestling fans are outsiders. And, you know, like in your story, you have them talking a lot about, you know, comparisons to different art. A tabletop and like RPG game character archetypes. Yeah. And I think like it seems like New Day realized before some other folks did like the like the the nerd like the nerd love of the fandom and that fans were like oh my god these guys are us. Yeah. No. These are. I think their ring gear now um, is very is basically Power Ranger themed. You know, like they mm-hmm. debuted a couple of weeks ago, and you know, like. I mean, from a pure craft level, the entire enterprise of professional wrestling has gotten so, like, finely tuned, you know? So, like you were saying, the physical capabilities of the performers now are just utterly crazy. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, the scripting and the improv that happens, you know, during a live show, during a a televised show, is also great, too, you know? So, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked about this with the guys on the podcast, how, like, you know, how do you know when a joke that lands, a, a bit that lands, how do you know when to repeat it? How do you know when to leave it alone? You know, like, you know, the pancakes thing they told us was <laughs> just like, you know, 
a random gag that just, you know, kind of stuck. And now, you know, they're throwing pancakes into the ring, you know? Um, so stuff like that. There's like, again, like I said, like this organic unpredictability to um, the whole enterprise now. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that the New Day is so popular is because, um, like you said, the they were at right place, right time to align with um, a larger ascendancy of nerd culture, you know, and when I say nerd culture, I'm talking about things like video games mm-hmm. and superhero genre comics and, you know, all that kind of stuff, tabletop games, um, all that stuff, you know, the, the, the stereotypes that you and I kind of grew under where it was uh, perceived as juvenile or lowbrow or childish, you know, all those things have kind of faded away, right? So, I think, again, the New Day were in the right place at the right time um, and were able to, again, infuse their in-ring personas with that stuff in a really great way. So, you know, they have a, they, there was a, a plot line about them, you know, building a time machine um, and, you know, doing all kinds of wacky stuff. Like, it's the kind of thing that would have seemed so weird like 10, 15 years ago. But now it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Um <laughs> You know, they come out in the ring in, in in Dragon Ball Z outfits, you know, like they call themselves unicorns. Um, and there's something refreshingly kind of like left of center about it all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the audience is responding to and what is a large part of their popularity. And, you know, you also consider the fact that, yeah, these are three black guys, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the 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 reality of what black performers have had to do, the kinds of gimmicks and characters that they had to perform as um, were based on big, broad stereotypes. And, you know, to be fair, that wasn't just the case with black performers. That was a case with performers from any kind of um, ethnocultural um, outlier, you know, and I say outlier, understanding that, like, you know, in the United States, um, the default for, you know, these kind of creative enterprises tends to be a white male, right? So when I say outlier, that's what I mean. But like, yeah, if you were somebody like the Iron Sheik, you know, mm-hmm. he was basically presented as like uh, 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 an operative of the Shah of Iran, right? You know, and um, the same thing with the Russian characters, you know, yeah. the late Cold War. Um, you had characters that were seen as threats to the all-American jingoism presented by uh, Hulk Hogan and stuff like that. So um now the the fact that characters who you know can be read as the other by a large part of the audience the fact that they are you know the, the longest reigning tag team champion ever like that that's a profound shift you know they're so popular and they're so good that you can't deny them so tell me a bit about your personal origin story with wrestling you know i mean uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and wrestling was a thing that was on that came on after the Saturday morning cartoons came on after Super Friends and then the Kung Fu movies and all that stuff that was just, you know, there on on a Saturday when I was stuck in the house. Um, so I got into it like that. And, you know, I watched, you know, in the, when the WWF, as it was called back in the day, I do um, remember was became popular on a national level and a global level for the first time, you know, like that era of Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and the ultimate warrior, 
you know, wrestling existed before that, but um, it didn't become a, a, a national and global phenomenon until that moment. So, you know, a, a large part of what appealed to me about, you know, wrestling then was, yeah, it felt like superhero comics, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, they're punching it out. You know, there's a lot of declamatory, you know, statements made about, you know, uh, uh, why they deserve your support. You know, it was a great trash talk. You know, I still sometimes when I'm feeling down, I'll go look at videos of, of uh, Macho Man Randy Savage's promos. Which oh, they're so good. Are so amazing. They're um, brilliant. And all that stuff was like off off the cuff. And yeah. and yeah, so the creativity was always, always there, right? But there was this, always this metafictional layer that required the audience to believe that this was a window into an alternate reality that you were looking at and it was quote unquote real. Now, you know that they've kind of scrubbed away that layer. And it, like I said before, it makes it all the more interesting. So for me, you know, it was like being um, excited to see like the good guys and the bad guys battle it out in the ring. Um, and then when I got older and I, I kept watching through college and after, um, Oh, that right. included some rough times in the history of wrestling. Yeah, um, but it it was more about like, you know, how transgressive would they be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that was, you know, some problematic stuff that was like not kind to people, again, um, from marginalized groups. But there was this idea that like wrestling was going through its own adolescence, right? Um, and watching that happen was kind of interesting to me. Um, but also, like, you watch, the again, the physicality and the skill and all that stuff in the ring kind of ramp up, you know? Uh, people are doing things in the ring now that, you know, just seemed impossible, like, uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago. And so that's yeah. part of what kept me watching. Um, I don't watch as much as I used to, but... Again, I think like you said, so many people from so many different walks of life that, again, had previously been kind of like aligned against wrestling, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember like, you know, it was a jock thing, right? Like it was a a thing where um, if you liked comics and, and reading and fantasy, like this was not a place for you. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, you know, there are a lot of, you know, storylines and promotions within uh, professional wrestling where they made fun of nerds and geeks and whatnot, you know? Mm-hmm. And now they're embracing that stuff. So um, that's part of what keeps me um, looking at that stuff, um, even though I don't watch like week in, week out like I used to. For For those of you who are not really familiar with, you know, professional wrestling and have made it to this point in the podcast. One, I applaud you for your good taste because this is really good stuff. Um, but two, like seriously, the, some of the, the classic um, improvisational promotional bits that some of the better wrestler performers of the, you know, of the eighties and, and did it's performance art. Like, I don't know how else to read, you know, like ultimate warriors, like, assume the controls like doing a whole extended metaphor of plane hijacking about how he's going to win 
a wrestling match. Like this is performance art. I don't know what else to call it. Um, and then now I think like you really are able to do even more with that because you're allowed to sort of acknowledge the meta narrative of the story now in a, in a new way. So it is an interesting, exciting time. Um, so one of the things I thought was really cool with this particular comic is um, the way you have the the voices of the of the of the wrestlers like as kids interplaying with what happens as they get older and in the background. Um, a Big E's opening scene uh, with his, I mean, his his dialogue, uh, his your mama jokes are just like, yep, no, that sounds exactly in the right voice um and you're in you're writing this based on uh, you know people who are themselves but also characters yeah that was super fun you know like that sequence in particular came just it came straight out of like listening to the podcast and listening to how these guys joke with each other right Mm -hmm. and you know thinking about them as fictional characters like we thought about okay well okay uh, uh, what are their strengths and weaknesses? Why do they need each other, right? So, you know, with somebody like Xavier, um, who's, you know, good at so many different things, he's needs the other two guys because he can't go it alone, you know? Um, um, and his challenge is to, to, to learn how to work with other people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, um, E's challenge is, okay, how do I get past... Um, people's stereotypical notion of what I'm supposed to be based on my size um, and show them all these other, you know, abilities that I have. Um, And Kofi, it's like, okay, well, I've been doing this for a while. How do I break through? You know, like, why do I need a gimmick? You know, why can't I just be myself? You know, and, you know, speaking about Kofi's career in particular, you know, if you've been following him for a while, you know, he's, was Kofi Kingston when it was basically like a, a, a Jamaican stereotype. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And um, his actual cultural background is not from the Caribbean. So oh. it's, it's um, kind of an object lesson about like, Oh yeah, let's make this real person who, who we could craft into a persona in other ways let's lean on something that is broad and kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say unsophisticated, but like it's easily legible to people who don't know a lot of uh, stuff about black culture. Hmm. So, so, you know, again, as a character in the fiction, Kofi's challenge was, okay, how do I not, how do I have a professional career and not submit to the gimmicks and stereotypes that they want to kind of uh, uh, um, place on me? So, you know, well, once we figure that stuff out, like Austin and I were able to figure out, okay, well, here, here's where they can help each other. Um, and, you know, in the story, like when they come together as a new day, when they're brought together as a new day, it's like, okay, we have a, we have a panel where Kofi's like, oh, not this again, you know. They're okay. They're <laughs> going to try on gimmicks because he's been through that in his in his career already. Um, um, and, and you know, it was just like again taking 
the guys' actual experience of having to develop their careers, sometimes under duress, sometimes with mm-hmm. directives they don't they don't necessarily agree with, and like fictionalizing that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think you really nailed it. I'm I'm really delighted by this comic and excited that we get a whole other issue of it coming out soon too. Um, how how did you guys get connected with doing this particular title? Um, so all credit on that goes to um, some editors at Boom, uh, Sierra Han, um, who's an editor I've known there for a while, um, had always been wanting me to do a project for them, and we never could find anything that quite fit. Um, you know, Boom has had the WWE comics license for a while now, and um, she recommended me to um, Chris Rosa, who was the originating editor on this project. He's no longer with Boom, but um, uh, Chris is a black man, and, um, you know, he's read some of my work as a critic and um, and my comics work, too, and he was like, I think you could do what I'm trying to achieve here. And so we talked about, like, okay, our, our love of wrestling, um, loving this sport that, you know, as is so often the case as, as black folks in America, you, you love something that doesn't love you back, right? Yeah. And, and, and what is the tension there and what does it mean to endure that? How can you thrive in such a dynamic? Um, so that was kind of like the, the thematic kind of uh, kernel that we built the, 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 the project around. And, you know, like, to be quite honest, Ilana, like, I sat and, right, well, I could write this myself, right? But I could also bring somebody in, you know? And um, I proposed to bring in Austin Walker as a co-writer, and, and they didn't have a problem with it. And I knew what I'd be getting there. You know, Austin is a great storyteller and world world builder. Um, he's funny. He's sweet. I love him to death. Um, but he's you know also has kept up with the modern era of wrestling that in a way that I haven't. So you know, I think we were a good. And it's going to sound terrible, but it's just not <laughs> planned. I think we were a good tag team because yeah. we could each do something that uh, the other couldn't. And you know, I had more experience writing comics than Austin did. So. Um, it, it turned out to be a really great, uh, synergy that we had and that's kind of how things got started. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, so, you know, you were someone who was doing a lot of critical work for a long time. Like I'm, I figure anybody listening to this show has read your critical work before. Uh, so how did you make the pivot from being a critic to like literally writing a Black Panther comic? You know, I mean... It sounds corny, but that came straight out of my criticism, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I've been writing about Black Panther as my favorite comics character for a while, you know? And there was a time when um, he didn't have a book on the stands. And I was like, okay, I hope they do right by my favorite comic book character. That was like, I'm paraphrasing the headlines of one, something I wrote back in the day. And um, I've always loved the character. I've written you know, kind of like critical analysis of his publishing history. Yeah. And it was, it was those pieces um, that led Marvel to reach out to me. And, you know, yeah, I, I can't um, obscure the fact that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and I were friends, but like when Marvel approached me, it was, it wasn't because we were friends. It was because <laughs> um, they read my stuff about Black Panther. And yeah. Thought I might have everybody's some- read you on Black Panther. So <laughs> yeah. And, exactly. and they thought I might have something to say about the character and to add to, you know, the mythos. Um, 
which, you know, was super flattering and, you know, made me incredibly nervous. And the pressure of being like, oh, okay, you've been talking the talk and you walk the walk. Um, but that's how it started. You know, it, it was it was Marvel asking me if I, you know, could take on this project. And I enthusiastically said yes, figuring out, you know, how to do my day job, which was to cover comics and nerd culture while also um, uh, uh, writing this project on the side, you know, which pretty much meant I wasn't writing about Marvel um, or superhero comics. Um, for the most part, when I was writing Rise of the Black Panther, I, I wound up doing, you know, more video game stuff, more movie reviews, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and I'm really grateful that, you know, my editors at, at io9 were able to carve out that niche um, for me. So that's how it started, you know, mm -hmm. and and from there, once Rise of the Black Panther was announced and started coming out, I had, you know, other companies and studios reach out to me about possibly contributing to their work as, as well. So Insomniac reached out to me to become a narrative design consultant on the Miles Morales game. And since then, I've had some other projects um, where other studios, but it was all because I was doing journalism and criticism, you know, about nerd culture in the first place. Um, um, and once, you know, a project on the creative side of things manifested for me, other people were like, oh, you want to do this stuff too? Um, so, you know, I've been, I have friends who say, don't say you're lucky. Um, you, you were preparing for this all along. And that's true. But like, mm -hmm. there definitely was a moment of like, the stars aligning. Yeah, but I mean, but it's a but it's impressive, like because writing a comic script is not the same as writing criticism. Like it's not, you know, absolutely so you were, not. You were really able to just pick up and, and do that. Um, I, I actually think, like, you know, your like your Black Panther series is like a really good, like, let me just hand this to you, Black Panther, like book to just give somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's self contained. And really compelling and especially like if, you know, you're someone who is thinking about the political implications of Wakanda existing in the world, like it's a really great comic for that. Um, it's really accessible. And uh, so I, I was, I know that when people were, you know, talking about, I see the movie, I want to read some of the comics, what should I do? I was like, actually, you know, Rise of the Black Panther is a pretty good way to go on that. Um I mean, because, th yeah. th thank you, Alana. Like, but also that was intentional, you know. Like, yep. we knew this comic was coming out in January of 2018, and the movie was coming out in February of 2018. And so, you know, part of the idea—I won't say mandate because it wasn't explicitly communicated to me—but the idea was, okay, make this legible and interesting to people who haven't been reading Black Panther stories for the last 50 years, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and that was, you know, a fun part of the challenge for me, you know? Like, yeah, okay, well, how do you sum up this character's origin story in a way which isn't just repeating the beats from before? You know, what new angles can I find to show, you know, from, like, a pivotal event like T'Chaka's death, right? Like, what's another way we can show that so that um, it resonates differently and adds to the stories um, that have been told before, hopefully without taking away. So, um, you know, for me, the, the whole germ of the main plot line in that book was thinking about, wait a minute, 
There was a moment when Wakanda was hidden and secret and isolated. And then there's another moment where the the Wakanda design group stock is being traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So at what point did they open up diplomatic and financial relations with the rest of the world? Um, What did that look like? Who did it? You know, how did it go over within the country? So when you start to think about all those questions, those answers become a story. Um, And some of it had been, you know, kind of gestured at before, but some of it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's an amazing, like you having Black Panther interacting with Namor was, this makes so much sense. And I know that one of the, the, things I'd love to see in a future Black Panther movie would be Namor and Black and the folks from Wakanda interacting because you have there's such interesting parallels um between their their countries and isolationist and then you know their their existence as a critique on like the dominant western world basically Absolutely yeah you know I mean, to me, such a natural pairing. And that that was not like an innovation I came up with. They have history, right? And But that's the fun of, you know, these long-lived legacy superhero comics, right? It's like you can, you can use new work to interrogate the prior work, right? And to, you know, show it from a different angle. To me, that's the fun, right? So, you know, I was a big fan of Jonathan Hickman's New Avengers run where, you know, Namor and T'Challa were always jawing at each other, right? Like this is coming after Namor um, wrecking uh, Wakanda when he had the power Mm -hmm. of the Phoenix in the Avengers vs. X-Men event, right? So, uh, you know, the fact that they then have to work together to try and save the universe um, was such rich story material. So to me, part of the, 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 the question I wanted to answer when when I was doing Rise of the Black Panther number two and they have to work together, it's like, okay, what was their first meeting like? You know? Um and it's a little bit of a retcon because, you know, their first meetings were kind of less dramatic and more and, and less kind of like um sociopolitically motivated within the mm-hmm. text of the Marvel Universe. But like part of me is like, well, you know, what if it was a really big deal? You know, <laughs> what if they had to work together, you know, because there were threats to both their nations and you know, then they could talk about what's what's similar about them as characters. You know, yeah, they're both rulers of isolated countries, but, you know, Namor is a hothead who's a jerk and an anti-hero, and T'Challa is somebody who's a scientist and more thoughtful and, um, you know, has a different connection to the history of, like, the throne of Wakanda. You know, he kind of ascended to the throne without much of a problem, whereas Namor is, you know... Uh, called a half-breed by his enemies, you know? And the yeah. fact that he's he's half-human and half-Atlantean um, politically doesn't work in his favor. So, you know, again, all these kind of tensions exist that um, are just basically ripe for um, um, informing a story. So that, that's what I tried to do with a lot of the, the stuff in Rise of the Black Panther, you know? Hunter, the White Wolf, the, the character created by... Uh, Christopher Priest and Mark Texiera in, in their run in 1998. Like, on the face of it, it's this kind of brilliant subversion of the Tarzan myth, right? Where, like, yeah, you're the white guy who winds up in, 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 in the quote-unquote dark continent. And, <laughs> um, but you this time, you don't become, like, top of the food chain. You don't become king of the jungle. Guess what? The jungle already has a king, 
Um, yeah. And he adopts you. Um, and then what happens? Why does this guy become an ultra-nationalist, you know, a, a zealot for this um, country, which he's not native to? And what utility does he serve um, the Wakandan kind of like governmental apparatus? So th- th- that stuff was, you know, you start with a character who, if you think about it, has all these unanswered questions around his existence within the fiction, and then you try to answer some of them, while also not upsetting upsetting the apple carts of the past from past stories. So, you know, when it came to like, I was like, you know, one that was, that was one of the challenges I gave myself is to make as many different like iterations and interpretations of the Black Panther mythos fit with each other, right? So the kind of mad scientist you know, science fiction crazy 1970s run written and drawn by Jack Kirby. Like, can I make some of that work? Um, with alongside the kind of um, like real politic, uh, uh, sociopolitical stuff from Christopher Priest run in 1998. And can I make that sit next to Shuri, a character who didn't exist, you know, yeah. like uh, 10, 15 years ago? Um, you know, Shuri gets created and introduced, and I think in 2006, um, during the Hudlin run. Um, it's either 2006 or 2005. I'm probably getting the dates wrong, but, you know. Yeah, thereabouts. One of the things I like to say is uh, the Christopher Priest Black Panther would have been totally different if Shuri existed, you know? Yes. Christopher Priest Black Panther is somebody who's broody and Machiavellian and keeps his emotions, you know, hidden and secret. And... If you get a, if you have, if you have a little sister in the mix, she's not letting any of that happen. She'd be like, you know, uh, uh, get over yourself and let's go do this thing, you know. Um, um, so I think the character changes over time, and revisiting, you know, the first year of his reign as king in Rise of the Black Panther, with that as a kind of conceit, um, that just let me play around with all these things. What if? Hunter was there from the beginning. What if Shuri was there from the beginning? How do I work in this half brother that Kirby created as like a throwaway villain of the month and give him sort of some deeper meaning within, mm-hmm. you know, T'Challa's life story. So um, it was really fun to do, but you know, to go back to your question that you asked, like, Oh, I don't know, <laughs> 10 minutes ago, like, yeah, it was meant to be an introductory text for people who would go see the movie, but also, you know, it was meant to be, a portal into the rich publishing history of this character that is so like multivalent and sometimes um, contradicts itself. It it was meant to, okay, let's see if we can find something harmonious within all these contradictions of his own publishing history. So that's, that's kind of what I tried to do there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely succeeded. And one of the things I think I, I wrote a little blurb of it when it came out and I, I think I said it had a Clermontian, uh, tendencies. And I then when I heard you on uh, Cerebrocast talking about Dazzler, and which confirmed, of course, your Claremont fandom. Oh, yeah, I'm a big Claremont fan. I was know. like, well, of course, he's a Claremont fan. Uh, yeah. How do you feel like his I mean, cause I felt like I saw the influence in his work. I mean, and one of the ways was simply that like, you were like writing like a text a texty text for that book, but in a way that like 
is good and makes you feel like you got your money's worth rather because like stuff can either be too much text and you feel like you're gypped because their art isn't doing its job or sometimes things are so decompressed and that you're just like ah this took me like two minutes I don't know what to tell you you've kind of like got that balance right in there um I don't know I mean I tried you know like I I still consider myself to be a journeyman comics creator I'm still learning the craft you know and if I had to do it all over again I probably would have written it differently um and, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I look at the pages of Rise of Black Panther and it's like, oh, you could have cut this stuff down a little bit. But at the same time, you know, I think as a fictional cu- culture, as we understand them, like Wakandans hold forth, you know, they <laughs> they talk shit. Yeah. Um, um, they give speeches, you know, they're prone to waxing poetic about, you know, their culture and history and what makes them so special and different. So, like, you know, that's part of who they are already, you know? Like, and I didn't want to make it, like, terse or, you know, um, um, feel... I didn't want to feel undernourished, you know? Like, this is who they are, and this is how they express themselves. And, you know, that sense of Wakanda, for me, is really deeply felt, right? You know, I mean, part of it comes from, like, growing up, um, as a child of Haitian immigrants and my mom having, you know, barbecues and parties in the back and, and hearing, you know, relatives and play cousins and everybody argue about politics, you know, like for hours, you know, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you look back at it. And for me, that felt like Wakanda, you know, um, hmm. and I drew on that. So, um, you know, as to the Claremont of it all, I mean, like, you know, I read his stuff growing up, it was formative, you know, but also like, the one thing I learned from reading Claremont's comics and other comics at the time that did this well, like Wolfman Perez Titans is like, yeah. you know, you can express a sense of a single character from how they interact with others. Right. So like, you know, when uh, T'Challa meets Storm in issue five of the Rise of the Black Panther, it's different than when he meets Namor. Right. Because mm-hmm. one character activates his sense of duty, his, um, makes him absorb his own rather observe his own relationship to his country's history and the other character you know reminds him of what he's missing you know like you know right now i can't date you we can't be together because i just became king of this isolated country and i'm i'm revealing them to the world so yeah the best we can do is have an adventure where i fight my half brother who wants to kill me and take over the country you know like <laughs> but like you know as signifiers for, for for his character, they, they they work differently. And seeing how he responds to them, you get a sense of who he is. So, um, you know, and that's something I learned from through reading Claremont, you know? Like, the way uh, uh, Magneto reacts to somebody like Wolverine versus Kitty Pride tells you two different things about his character um, and, and gives you a more dimensional sense of who he is as a person. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's Claremont all day, I think. Awesome. That's very, very well said. Um, and I, uh, you mentioned some of your work doing as a narrative designer on the Spider-Man Miles Morales video game. What does that mean? Like, for folks who aren't familiar with that concept. So, yeah, um, you know, I mean, it means that I helped work on the story, you know, like there was a lead writer that was Ben Arthman, um, and there were other writers like uh, uh, Mary Kenny. Um, and I was, you know, part of the team to help craft the story, but, you know, that's being there for the evolution and, 
and kind of being a sounding board for what feels wrong, what feels right. You know, um, certain parts of it were like talking about Harlem as somebody who's lived in Harlem, you know, and what does it feel like to live in that neighborhood and fall in love with it? And how can we uh, put that into a video game? Part of that is somebody is who's written black superheroes and, and, and written about writing about black superheroes and thinking about, okay, well, uh, the symbolic power of this character, how can we, you know, make that part of the text of the game, the experience of playing the game. Um, and part of it was writing some of the side missions um, um, and helping come up with the ideas for some of the side missions. So, you know, the job is different uh, with each studio and each project. Um, but um, in that case, it was like very um, much uh, like a full bodied collaboration and partnership. Like, uh, uh, you know, I can definitely look at that game and be like, oh, okay, there's parts of me that are in it. Um, um, and, and I contributed to that game in a meaningful way. So, um, that's good. Uh, you know, it's different than comics because, you know, I have the first and last say on what a character says and does, um, in a comic, in a video game, you know, there's all kinds of other demands that, um, are being placed on the storytellers and and that, that group of storytellers includes people who do the animation and the game design, puzzle design, um, you know, sound design, uh, all this stuff, you know, so you, you're part of a team that, that includes hundreds of people, you know, maybe six or seven people work on a, a single comics project at any given time. So the scale of the endeavor is totally different and you have a different kind of, um, mandate as a storyteller when you're working in collaboration with that many people. But um, it was really, really fun. And I love that game a lot. <laughs> well, I'm just glad that they brought in someone who can talk about living in that particular community and place because uh, when, I mean, I don't play video games, but when fictional media doesn't understand like the place in time and the world and the culture that they're telling stories in, that's a real place it's really freaking irritating and doesn't, yeah. it's not as interesting. It's just not as good, you know? Yeah. You know, like we, we definitely tried to, to build a sense of place and, you know, to make that East Harlem neighborhood where Miles finds himself after the events of the previous Spider-Man game. Um, we want to make it feel lived in, you know, like it has its own history, its own culture, you know, one that is quite honestly foreign to him. You know, he may be black and Puerto Rican, but he grew up in Brooklyn. He doesn't know what it's like uptown. You know, right. he doesn't know what 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 uh, it's like where his mother grew up. And um, you know, when you move to a new place and um, you're you know dealing with uh, uh, grief and loss, um, you acclimate differently. And then you got to be a superhero on top of it. You know, like <laughs> um, so yeah. making East Harlem feel like it existed before he ever got there was an important part. And what, and, and, and how that existence, the shops in the neighborhood, the people um, um, there make them feel different and distinct um, from the rest of the Isle of Manhattan, like was important, um, you know, for storytelling purposes, not just because, but like it's, it all comes back to story and characters and that stuff feeds right back into it. So, um, you know, uh, it was important to me that we communicate like what's special and unique about 
you know, these these cultural and ethnic enclaves like, you know, Spanish Harlem, like Brooklyn, you know, um, in, in the game, because I grew up in places like that. Yeah. And it's going to be so much richer for having had that contribution. So I think people who play video games should be very excited. I mean, we, I, I hope I hope so. And we definitely tried. I think we succeeded. But again, you know, ultimately, that's for other people to say. But like, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Awesome. And uh, I'm really happy with, you know, with the, your, your, your wrestling comic as well. And I, I just like really hope folks check it out. And uh, do you have anything else coming on the horizon that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah. So it's another video game that I was a narrative design consultant on. My involvement will be revealed um, that on that soon. Um, I, I, I've done some work on Redfall, which is a game uh, from Arcane Studios, uh, the, the Austin division of Arcane Studios. And it's a, a vampire um, shooter apocalypse game, um, which was a lot of fun to work on. Um, that'll be out next year, I believe. Um, hmm. um, and um, I've got some more comic stuff in the works that I can't talk about. And I, and I wrote on series two of Genlock, which I think is due out later this year. That's an animated series from Rooster Teeth, um, where Michael B. Jordan voices the main character of Julian Chase. Uh, David Tennant is also part of the voice cast. And Maisie Williams, Dakota Fanning. Oh, wow. Um, um, so season two is in production now um, and should be out later this year. Again, don't quote me on that. I don't know. Um, but... Yeah, that's that's the places where you will see my name um, coming up um, in the near future. Awesome. Any any critical stuff coming up? I saw you reshared your awesome piece about uh, what if the Marvel what if comics in a very timely way. Yeah, I'm 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 mostly done with that aspect of my career, um, mm-hmm. focusing on the creative side, you know. But Polygon asked me to interview Tanasi Coates at the end of his run. And so I kind of came out of retirement for that, you know, (laughs) coming out of retirement one last time. All does that, all all that to say, you know, if opportunities like that presents themselves and I'm able to, um, but I'm really focusing on, you know, continuing to learn how to write comics and, 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 and screenplays and, and video games and all this other stuff, um, and helping hopefully enrich those spaces. I love it. Well, I'm just really glad to see a critic whose work I really respect, um, you know, also move into the the narrative space, because I really do think having critical approach to storytelling can make for excellent storytelling. So um, like actually having analyzed the mediums, looking at the history and thinking about this and thinking about things that way. So I'm always happy to see it crop up. Well, thank you for joining me. And uh, where can our listeners keep an eye on your work? You're on Twitter at? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Evnarc, which is E-V-N-A-R-C. Um, and that's, you know, the the main place I will talk about the things that I'm doing. Um, yeah, so if you want to find out, you know, where you can see my name next, that's probably the best place to, ch- to, to, to follow me. Fabulous. And for my listeners... I was just on an episode of One Shot Test Kitchen, which is an RPG podcast. Th- those are some of the folks who we had on my show to talk about getting into tabletop role-playing games. Um, they invited me on their show to do a playthrough of a heavy metal role-playing game called Umlaut. So if you want to hear me and frequent guest on the show, John Arminio, role-playing as metal bands, 
trying to play and duel our way to success, you can check that out on One Shot Test Kitchen podcast. And I'm going to be back on Progressively Horrified to talk about more Hellraiser very soon. And of course, on my show, we've got coverage of Loki and Black Widow and all the other good stuff, as well, of course, as more comics. If you listen to the show, I would love to get some updated reviews on our iTunes. Uh, Like, do an iTunes review. Let me know. You'll forever be in our gratitude. And of course, you can ask me questions or check out whatever I'm up to on Twitter, where I am a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Until then, keep it geeky.